In Jesus' name, amen. So our study this morning is going to start at verse 12 of chapter 1 and then go all the way through the end of chapter 2. Next week we'll be looking at chapter 3. To start off with, some of you remember Indiana Jones, played by Harrison Ford. He was the history-loving adventurer who went all over the world in search of the Lost Ark or the Holy Grail. And of course, there was danger along the way. There's those booby traps, those flying darts, snakes. Why does it have to be snakes, he said. Machetes were flying around. And if he could just get his hands on those precious artifacts, then the world would be a better place full of enjoyment, answers would be had for people. We love stories of quests and expeditions. More recently, it's been the national treasure scene with Nicolas Cage, and the thing that makes these stories interesting is that there's always a tension that exists within the story. How will the hero find the treasure? Will they have to go down these hidden tunnels that can only be found by figuring out the symbols on a map? Will they end up jumping on some sort of plane and end up flying through the air, barely holding on? You know, will they be running through the streets of a major city with misinformed policemen trying to catch them, but they have to find the treasure in order to get what's needed? Will their quest for the treasure be satisfied, or will it be elusive, never able to really land in their hands? As Christians, as humans, we're all on a quest. We are on a quest for enjoyment. Young people, many of you are seeking for enjoyment among your peers, that sort of social acceptance where you know that people approve of you, or maybe you're seeking for enjoyment by having those in the stands get up on their feet and roar with excitement as you head down the football field. I was at a football game last week, and it just... There's that adrenaline that comes in as you watch these players, and even as a player, you might say, well, that's my enjoyment. Uh, you might be looking for enjoyment by materialism, the next car, the next boat, an amount of money that if you just get it, you'll be able to rest and you'll be able to enjoy life. Maybe you're looking for a level of achievement that leaves your imprint on the world or in someone's life, one where you could stand back and say, now that feels good. I, I left an imprint there. We're all looking for that rare jewel of enjoyment in life. And the question is, how do you find it? Well, as we open up the Bible, these ancient words that we were singing about we believe as Christians that God has given us everything that we need in order to live a life of enjoyment with him. And as God inspired his word, it's wonderful, wonderful for us to realize that he was using whom we believe is Solomon here to write these words down for us to understand how enjoyment should work. Last week, we began a new series in the book of Ecclesiastes, and in order to understand and appreciate this book, I think you need to remember the historical context of what is taking place. Solomon had just ascended to the throne. Uh, David, his father, was a man of war. He pushed the boundaries back. David developed a fortress. Solomon comes along, and he develops, if you will, a kingdom of beauty and opulence. 
Israel is experiencing a time of economic prosperity. The economy is booming. And if Solomon is writing this at the end of his life, it's as though he walks out of his palace and opens up the door as he stands on the balcony and can see everything that's taking place in his kingdom. And verse 2 of chapter 1 is his statement. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He looks at all of this that is going on, all of the good things, and he says, it's vanity. A few things that we have to understand as we study this book. First is this term vanity. I won't take as long as I did last week. Vanity has this idea of a mist or vapor, something that is very transient. So we were boiling noodles this week, and up comes the the vapor out of the boiling water, and it's there for a moment, and it's gone. It's something that can't be fully grasped. It's like a cloud or like fog in the early morning. If you were to go out and put your hand around it, you would put your hand into it, and it just slips between your fingers. It's, It's not permanent. And if you go after it to try to bottle it up, the result of trying to bottle up this, this, this thing here, this life, Solomon says it's going to be a frustration for you. It's going to be like chasing after the wind and trying to somehow hold it. So when Solomon looks at all of the materialism, all of the wealth, all of the good things that are going on in his kingdom that are going to be temporary, he says, you need to know this, that this is vanity. Now there's two more phrases or two more words, if you will, that we need to understand as we jump into this book. The other phrase or the second phrase, I should say, is the phrase under the sun or under heaven. It's a phrase that shows up 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and Sidney Gradanus in his book on Ecclesiastes says about this phrase, under the sun, it refers to living in this world without taking God into account. When you see that phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's this idea that somebody is living in the materialistic world without taking God into account. I'm living under the sun. The sun is the highest object. It's just the sun, me, and all of this stuff here. Now, in contrast to that, Solomon will write big chunks, um, kind of assessing society. And he'll write about this as being filled with vanity and under the sun. And then he'll throw in this jewel at the end where he'll talk about, and here's the third phrase, under God or from the hand of God. It has the idea that you are living in this world and taking God fully into account with all things that are taking place. So here's this contrast, life under the sun, it's just me under the sun, and it's this idea that I don't have to take God into account. And then Solomon contrasts it with this phrase, under God or from the hand of God. Those who are going to live in this world can truly find joy if they recognize all of these things as coming from the hand of God. So two people sit down on a patio after a full day. Both have worked on really big, stressful projects and were able to get them to the place where they wanted. It's the perfect Friday afternoon, 73 degrees, a light breeze. One sits down with an iced tea in his hand and has a huge smile on his face. This is the happiest he has ever been because his circumstances went well today. Now, there's another person 
who sits down with an iced tea on a patio and very peaceful. He has a deep joy, maybe we could even call it a quiet joy, because he sees that the project went well because God's hand was in it. He also sees the ants walking across the patio, heading into cracks, and thinks, wow, God made that ant, and look at them, they're storing up for winter. What wisdom that God had to create that ant. He stares up into the trees and sees thousands, tens of thousands of leaves and realizes that God has creatively designed this photosynthesis factory to be happening in billions of cells in these leaves all over these trees so that those leaves are green and are pleasant to look at. And then he sees past the green leaves and sees the blue sky and he says, wow, all the atmospheric gases that God put together, they could have, they could have reflected a different color, but what a beautiful blue he, he's living life under the hand of God. And over here, the guy who sits down because his circumstances went well goes back to work on Monday and has a pile of projects on his desk and is just banging his head saying, man, life went from great on Friday to really poor on Monday. Solomon would say, that's vanity. So Ecclesiastes is a book that's showcasing the vanity of life under the sun. Solomon is intentionally drawing our attention intentionally saying, I want you to see this. And most of the book, or a lot of the book, is about Solomon looking at culture, looking at society under the sun. So when you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you're like, man, it's kind of a depressing book with a few of these spikes of joy. The reason why you say it's kind of depressing is Solomon wants to convince you that life under the sun is vain. It's meaningless. A net gain of zero is going to happen. And so it's good for us to go through Ecclesiastes and feel that sort of weight because what he's doing is he's just putting the weight of all of his study on your shoulder saying, are you convinced yet? Are you convinced yet? Are you convinced yet? Oh, wait a second. Let me give you hope over here that it doesn't have to be that way. So this morning, Solomon is going to put more weight on our shoulders uh, the way that I think of it is Solomon was willing to be a lab rat for all of us. He goes into the lab and he's like, okay, I have to run down these four quests and we're just going to see, I'm the experiment for you. I'm going to go down these four quests and I'm just going to let you know how it goes so that you don't have to. So this morning, point number one is this. Vanity is the end result of searching for joy under the sun. Vanity is the end result of searching for joy under the sun. Solomon goes down four searches or four quests. What are they? The first one is simply this, the quest of understanding. These are the verses that Jeff was reading earlier. In verse 13, Solomon says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Basically, he took up the occupation of being a sociologist. He wanted to see how people live their lives. He wanted to see what makes people have their drive, how they make their decisions. And as he studied everything that was taking place, as, as he looked at society, he came to the conclusion that everything done under the sun is vanity. It's like he can see them chasing after the wind. So let's go one step further. Why is everything vain and pointless? Well, in verse 15, he says that what is crooked cannot be made straight. 
So you've taken a metal hanger out of your closet before to sort of unbend it and have to put a hook on the end of it to fish down into a hole to get something, maybe a, a bolt or a, a nut or something that fell behind the couch. And you, you unbend that metal hanger, untwist it so that it's straightened out as much as possible. Once you bend that into the shape that you want, it's impossible to put those old metal hangers back into the shape of being a hanger again. Once it's bent, once it's sort of kinked, like screens when you've locked yourself out of the house and you have to remove the screen from the outside and you're like, oh, just a little bit more, uh, and it, it bends in that way. To try to pull that screen frame back out, it's bent. It can't be made straight again. Because of the effects of sin in the world, humanity is bent. It's crooked. It can't be made straight. So if society is bent and lacking, as Solomon looks at all of this, he continues his little quest as a sociologist under his first quest, and he says, maybe I can see why it's bent. Well, what, what are the characteristics that define society for how it got here? And he says, well, then I decided to kind of take up wisdom and folly. This is still letter A for you. And Solomon's conclusion is that to try to study such things is frustrating. It's pointless because to use wisdom to understand the world is like sticking your head in used motor oil trying to figure out why it tastes bad and smells bad. To stick your head further into a bent society that is just infected with sin, you're just going to get more whiffs of sin. You're going to be like, this is sorrowful. And so he says here in verse 17 that I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. To try to enjoy life by going down the road of philosophy apart from God, you're just going to see more of the bentness and the sorrow of the world. So he takes up a second quest because that didn't lead him to joy. The second quest is seeking pleasure, the quest of seeking pleasure. And this is where chapter two opens up. So he says, I'm going to seek for personal gain. Now keep in mind, God created us before sin. Think Garden of Eden, all of the things that God gave to us in the Garden of Eden, he definitely created them for our pleasure and our enjoyment. I mean, he created us to be sensory, to be able to taste something and say, wow, that is a great combination of flavors that are coming together. And Solomon says, hmm, there are these, these spikes of joy or spikes of pleasure over here. Let me give myself to them without restraint. And so he goes into chapter two and he takes up several categories of life. In verse 2, Solomon says, I'm going to choose laughter or humor. In verse 3, he says, wine makes me happy, so I'm going to choose wine. In verse 4, he gives himself over to really great works of construction. He tried to find pleasure in building houses and vineyards and gardens and parks and then in pools. In verse 7, he says he employed slaves, male and female, which is probably closer to employees today than our pre-Civil War idea of slavery. He had all kinds of herds and flocks. 
In verse 8, it says that he gave himself over to getting gold and silver. He also acquired land. He had choirs for himself. And then if the ESV translation is accurate here, it says he acquired concubines, a harem of women. If you read the history books earlier in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings chapter 11, the Bible tells us that Solomon turned away from the Lord. And when he did, he acquired for himself 700 wives and 300 concubines. He's a playboy at this point. If I think I can find pleasure in this area, I'm going to cast off any restraint. I'm throwing aside sexual integrity, and I'm searching for the thrill of pleasure in sexual adultery. In verse 10, here is Solomon's conclusion. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil, and this was my reward for all of my toil. So there's those sort of momentary episodes of pleasure. But then he goes on in verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Guys, let me talk to you for just a minute. Um, there's a number of categories that Solomon immersed himself into. Uh, searching for possessions, all of that kind of stuff. But one of the very obvious things that Solomon did with his life was he gave himself over to sexual freedom, lack of restraint. If he saw a woman that he wanted, apparently he got her. Um, what was going on with Solomon? Was Solomon wrestling with women? Now, as you look at the beginning of chapter 2, the issue is that Solomon was looking for enjoyment. He was on this warpath to find pleasure and meaning in life. Wherever you have been, men or women, with pornography, whatever struggle, whatever battle, whatever war you've had with it, you need to realize that pornography is not your main issue. Your problem is that you are joyless. You're searching for joy, and you're thinking that pornography or sexual adultery, this sort of licentious lifestyle, can be the answer to your joylessness. Life is dull. I can't find any meaning. I feel like there's a net gain of zero right now. And I so badly want to feel a sense of joy. That's where pornography enters into your life. You have to recognize it for what it is. You don't have a problem with pornography. You have a problem with joylessness. Another woman might give you the thrill for just a moment. And ladies, another guy might give you that thrill of security or of being wanted, but you will find that if you are aiming to fight long-term, sort of mundane, I can't find meaning in life, if you're looking to find long-term pleasure in pornography or romantic es escapade, 
you're going to find that you're just jumping into vanity over and over and over again. It's this endless cycle, Solomon said. Think about it from a materialistic perspective. Can you think of the first phone you got? I remember when people were standing in line for those iPhones all the time, iPhone 4. Uh, they're artifacts now. People are standing in line for hours, getting all giggled up about trying to get this iPhone that was going to be their joy. And how come iPhone 4 is no longer that handheld present of joy anymore? Because cycles around, it's vanity. They don't hold pleasing value to us, and yet we run around like crazy when something new comes out because we're searching for ultimate enjoyment and fulfillment in life under the sun. Get your iPhone, get your i12, whatever it is, you know, no problem, but recognize all of this materialism for what it is. A lot of us are spending time wasting vast portions of our life thinking, if I just get that, then I'll find meaning and contentment in life. And Solomon is saying, I'm the lab rat who ran down every one of these quests. And he says here, it's like striving after the wind. The third quest that Solomon goes after is the quest of living wisely. This is in verses 12 through 17 of chapter two. He goes from living a life given over to pleasures to one that is characterized by, let me just stand back and be a sage, a wise old man in life, as opposed to the foolish person. He's deciding to grow up here, and, and maybe I can navigate my way through life making wise decisions, and that will be of pleasure to me. According to verses 13 and 14, he said, hey, living wisely does have a benefit to it in contrast to living foolishly. The wise person is like the person who walks around in the light. They can see things for what they are. The foolish person is like somebody who's walking around in the dark, just bumping into things and can't see things for what they are. Yet in verse 14, Solomon's bubble pops. He says in verse 14, the same thing happens to the wise person and the foolish person. So take, and I'll just throw an age out there, take a 92-year-old man who sits back and he says, I lived the life of wisdom. I mean, I read all the books and I was very wise about all of the decisions that I made. But he turns to his side and right over there is another 92-year-old man with a toothless kind of Cheshire-like grin, grinning. And that guy's like, I lived 92 years and forget your books, I lived for folly. And the wise old sage at this point in life is saying, he got all the way to this point in life. I got all the way to this point in life. Is there any difference between the two of us? Because he says this, now we die. We both face the same future. Death has a way of sort of snapping us from our thoughts of this is where pleasure and enjoyment can be found if I just live this way. And then we turn and look across the aisle and we see that, that fool over there, that clown over there. And Solomon's like, this is a bother to me because what is the net gain? We all die. My mom would have this um, lemon squeezer, this glass bowl that had this sort of pyramid in the middle. You've seen them before. And during the winter months, a lot of times, we were drinking lemons, 
because that was vitamin C and that was going to be the cure-all to us. And still to this day, during the winter months, I am, I am reefing on those lemons, just squeezing them for all they're worth to get all that juice out and use it up. Solomon is like, I have squeezed out life. I've squeezed it in every one of these categories. I've milked it for all of its worth. But I look across the aisle and guess what? We're both two lemon peels that are going to die. Is there, what's, what's the benefit here? So there's a fourth quest that he goes on. And that's the quest of possessions in verses 18 through 23. Now think about it from Solomon's perspective. He's a king. He has really developed this nation. Remember, David gave it to him. He's brought it to be a place of beauty. And he moves into this section here. And in verse 18, he says, I hated all the toil, my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be a master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Uh, maybe a little bit more clearly, you could think about it from a presidential perspective. President gets in office for four years, eight years, implements all kinds of policies, makes all kinds of changes. At the end of his eighth year, he stands back and says, man, we've done a lot. And all of a sudden, somebody from the opposite party comes into office and says, now it's all mine. I get to do whatever I want. Solomon's like, I worked hard for all of this. And now it goes into somebody else's hands and they're going to do whatever they want with it. So Solomon is saying to us, if you want to find enjoyment in life, he's saying, I did the quests for you. I squeezed life for all that it was worth. I went down this road of trying to understand society. I went down this road of giving myself over to pleasures because I had the capacity and the resources to do it. I did this thing where I lived like a wise sage and I tried that approach. And then, by the way, I accumulated as many possessions as anybody could ever have. And I want you to know that in the end, it's all vanity. So the question is lingering in the back of our minds. How does one find enjoyment in life? Solomon says this in verses 24 and 25. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. But Solomon, you told me that you did all of that and it gave you a zero at the end. Well, now he gives us the answer. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. Here's the contrast. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Um, the Jews, the people of God, would come to their meals and they would set aside their food at every meal by prayer. They realized that God was the one who was watering the fields and causing the sun to come up and give them their crops. And so before every meal, they acknowledge this food that I'm about ready to receive is from the hand of God. They got that. That's like a no-brainer. You ask a Jew, where did this food come from? From the hand of God. So Solomon says, apart from God, who can eat? The Jews would say, well, we can't. And then he throws this line, or who can have enjoyment? Enjoyment. 
as natural as food comes from the hand of God to feed you, Solomon is saying you need to realize that from the hand of God comes true, deep, lasting enjoyment. One finds true enjoyment when one lives not simply under the sun, but in relationship with God. So this leads us to point number two, which will be much shorter than point number one. Point number two is in the form of a question. For apart from God, who can eat or have enjoyment? Solomon is asking you to roll this around in your mind, to chew on it for a a while. Who can eat or who can have enjoyment apart from God. As the people of God, we're seeing that meaningful joy can only come from who God is. Where does this come from? How do we get it? It comes from our relationship with God. Now let's develop this a little bit more as we sort of cast the hook back over what we've studied and pull things forward. Two lessons that we learn from this. The first lesson is this. Earthly things such as possessions, pleasures, food, wisdom, work, earthly things are not the problem. How we view them is. Earthly things are not the problem. How we view them is. It's what we try to get from these things that are the problem. Think about this. This has been what Satan has used from the very beginning of Scripture. When Satan walked into the Garden of Eden and met with Adam and Eve, what did he use as as bait, as joy bait for them to lead them away from God? He used creation. He used what God had created. And his basic message was this. This creation over here, this creation under the sun can do more for you than what God can ever do. If you pursue this creation, remember the fruit of the tree, your eyes will be opened in a way that they've never been opened before. You'll experience pleasure and enjoyment in a life that's far more fulfilling than what God could ever give you himself. So God is walking with Adam and Eve. There's fellowship that's taking place in the garden. And all of this was meant to serve their relationship with God. And Satan comes along and says, hey, let me just tempt you with something. Let me tempt you with this lie that if you give your heart over to the creation, you will actually have meaningful and lasting joy. And Adam and Eve looked at the creation. They looked at God. They looked back at the creation. They said, okay, we're giving our heart over to you, creation. Creation became everything. The material became everything, and God became, we could say, nothing. Take a 13-year-old boy. His dad loves him. He and his dad have a great relationship together. And the dad says, I want to build my relationship with my son. My son, he enjoys fishing. So I'm going to get him a fishing pole. No more push button Zebcos where the worm guts get stuck in there, the seaweed gets tied up in there. We're going past that. We're going to a brand new Shimano reel. The line's going to fly off the pole and we're going to do fishing together. So he gives his son this gift. 
It's to be used. Son, let's go fishing together. The son takes the brand new fishing pole. No more Zebco, no more push button. Here's my nice flexible rod. I'm going fishing and soon fishing becomes everything to him. He stays up late at night skimming YouTube to learn new techniques. He's checking the water reports and the fishing reports on the rivers and the lakes to see what's hitting and what's not. He gets a boat and a nice trailer when he turns 16, a new truck to pull it. At supper, his phone is on the table because he's into fishing all the time and he's searching for the next big monster. And in the meantime, his relationship with dad has taken a definite backseat because he's so obsessed with the joy or the thrill of finding the next thing because that promises him real enjoyment. So what happened? The pole. The pole. It's just a pole. It's just a Shimano reel on a pole. That has become a means to idolatry. It's become a gift that has turned into this all-consuming passion for him, and he can't ever get enough of it. So he keeps going back over and over and over and over again. More things added to it because that didn't last. More things added to it. Click, more. Porn, more. Materialism, more, 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 more. And as we sit back as spectators, we say to the 13-year-old guy, man, you just don't see it, do you, son? You just don't, you don't see the big picture. This Shimano reel is not everything. Here's your dad who is everything. When it comes to your relationship with the Lord, God has given us many things under our stewardship as humans. He has given you creation to enjoy, but he's given it to you to enjoy your relationship with him. Creation serves your relationship with God. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Are riches the problem? No, they're not the problem. Paul is saying, hey, remember that your hope is not on all this materialistic stuff over here. Your hope, because you have things in life like all of us as Americans do, your hope is in who God is. Now, enjoy this because God has been the one who's given it to you. Walk in relationship with him. The problem is our perspective is not like walking with God in the hand of God and enjoying these things and saying, thank you, God. It's as though we've got blinders on and these things have become the end all for us. These possessions have. They've become pursuits. They're idols. Idols that we eventually consume and sometimes we just discard. So we're on to the next thing. Listen, folks, Satan wants you to think that your fullest enjoyment and hope is going to be in creation, not the creator. So the question is, has creation and your pursuits become a God? Have you arranged your life around the creation and getting more creation? Or is your life truly arranged around your relationship with God and enjoying him? Ecclesiastes is teaching us that joy has a true source. Solomon is telling us 
where it comes from. Solomon has taught us that apart from God, you will not be able to find deep abiding enjoyment. You must see everything as a gift from God and you turn back to God and you're saying, wow, that ant, that blue sky, this used car that I have, thank you, Lord, for all of this. And that's what the Garden of Eden was. We're returning back to that pre-sin perspective of creation. The garden never was ultimate. God was. And we're meant to enjoy God through the garden. Lesson number two. Only through the work of Jesus in your life can we fully have the possibility of true enjoyment. Only through the work of Jesus in your life can we fully have the possibility of true enjoyment. I was thinking about this after reading an article this week. Think about Jesus who comes into the world, looks at the Old Testament, reads it back and forth, studies the book of Ecclesiastes, and realizes, I have come so that enjoyment might be had. Um, If enjoyment is had in the relationship with God, we need a relationship with God. And that relationship only comes through the work that Jesus accomplished here on earth. Last week, I mentioned Martin Luther's comment about our perspective as sinners. He said in Bondage of the Will that we are bent in upon ourselves. So in concrete work, you've maybe been past a bridge where they're building a bridge, and in the middle of that concrete, there's all these rebars. Those, they look like rusted bars. A bunch of these bars are going up, or you've maybe seen people building a parking deck or putting in concrete on the road. There's all these metal bars that go through the cement when it's poured in order to give structure, in order to give strength to the concrete when it's there. If you take that rebar and just bend it down and maybe have it bent all the way down so end to end it's it's come back and it's shaped in a horseshoe like this, in your own strength, Taking that bar, you cannot bend it back and make it straight. It's fixed. You need something else. You need a machine to bend it or else it's going to be cast aside. And Luther's point is we were all hopelessly bent in just looking at ourselves. We had this this inward perspective, couldn't see the hand of God at all. And Paul picks up on this in our depravity in Ephesians chapter 2 where he says that we were all dead and we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That's where we were, just bent in upon ourselves. We need a greater strength in ourselves to straighten us back up so that we can see God for all of who he is. Now, some people are just running through this world looking for the next hit of materialism. Just, just pump me with the next hit. And they're left there, laying there like, man, when's the next one? When's the next one? How come this won't work? It's because you're bent in upon yourself. If you haven't had the work of Jesus straighten you out, your life is vain. And so the question is, if you're a non-Christian, how does that take place? God sent his son, Jesus, into the world. Jesus lived the only perfect, obedient life, the only life where he could stand before the Father and say, truly, I am innocent. All of us are sinners. We've fallen short 
of God's glory, and we deserve just judgment from God. We need the work of Christ right here. We need the life of Christ. And so Jesus goes to the cross and willingly substitutes himself in our place and takes the judgment from God upon himself and offers his life as a gift of obedience to all of us who are bent in upon ourselves and says, now this life will straighten you out with God. This life is for the forgiveness of sins so that you can have a relationship with God and go from living life under the sun to living life with the hand of God. That's the work of Jesus. So Pastor Luke read the verse earlier, 2 Corinthians 5, where if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation, bent to unbent, straightened out. Are we perfect? No. I mean, how many times this last week have we sort of reverted back to ourselves? How many times have we walked in sin and lost sight of who God is? We're not perfect, but through the means of the Spirit, God continues to do his work in our lives so that we can keep walking in relationship with him. So what's the quest for enjoyment? The quest for enjoyment is a relationship with God as we go through this world. This week, enjoy the things God has given you. Take time to enjoy the blades of grass on your lawn. Maybe walk around barefooted on the grass and enjoy the growth of God's carpet. And in your mind, because you have this relationship with God through Jesus, now you can say, God, thank you for this grass here. You are the great one who makes this grass grow. Or maybe you're going to be the one who sits on your patio and instead of having iced tea, you've got the grill out there with steak and asparagus. And think for just a moment, on day six, the great creator Elohim created the cows. And now for several thousand years, God has been facilitating these cows to reproduce and all of those muscles inside the cows that are being built up by the cows eating the grass, the grass growing from the sun, the grass growing from the water, the nutrients underneath, all of this being a part of creation, God is saying, now take a little slice out of that T-bone and enjoy it because I'm the one who gave it to you. And then, of course, eat some asparagus alongside of it and think about that too. God, you're the one who gave all of this to me. You're driving down the road this week. It's beautiful this time of year. Crisp air. I was on a walk this last week and thinking through this, and it's dark in the morning. I look up, and there, crisp air, no haze, just the stars dotting all the way through. And I'm like, wow, God, millions of light years away, possibly, however far along. Those things are so far away. You made the earth, and you made it in such a way where that light was already coming to us so that we could see and enjoy these stars. That's about you, God. Or am I just on to the next thing? Look at your relationships with others. God has put you within the relationships of others to be a blessing to them, but they're also a blessing to you, a smile on their face, a humorous comment, a, a thankful comment, a, a suggestive thing to, to help out in life. The features, their eyes, their brains, their speech. God has made it all for our enjoyment, not as an end-all under the sun, but to walk with him. Do you realize that everything and everyone around you is from the hand of God? That's what Solomon is saying now. Now enjoy the creator. 
Only from the hand of God will you be able to find your enjoyment this week. Let's pray.